Amen. Guys, I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me for our scripture reading for our sermon text this morning. We are in Paul's second letter to the Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And we'll look together at verses 1 through 18. The whole chapter. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And we'll read the whole chapter together. I ask you to please stand as we read Holy Scripture. This is God's holy word for us, his people. And God's word says, Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter of recommendation, written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ, delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now, if the ministry of death, carved in letters on stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, Will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the old covenant, that same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. This is God's holy word for us as people. Let's ask him to bless this word today. Father, we ask that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear, that you would stand forth to us from your word, write your truth from your word upon our hearts, May we listen attentively to what your word has to say. Bless the preaching of this word, we pray. Use it to 
transform us even now from one degree of glory to another. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. And you may be seated. A common, a common phrase that a lot of us use at different times in our life is this. We'll say, well, this is the end of an era. The end of an era. And we do this at multiple junctures in our lives. Whenever you graduate high school and all those friends you had in high school are all going to scatter and go to different colleges or into different jobs and some of them might stay in the same hometown and some are going to go to colleges far away and and then it's really hard to reconnect and you look back and you say well that was the end of an era the transition from high school into adult life whether it's college or a job or moving we look back on our days when we were single and we say man I'm getting married in a month it's the end of an era and all your buddies are crying and like no we're going to lose him. <laughs> he won't be the same after this. She's going to change him. And we say, oh man, remember when we used to hang out when we were married? Before, before I got married, man, that was, the, that was the end of an era. And we look back. Or sometimes, you know, we are changing from one big career we had into a whole different career, a whole new career path. And we say, man, those, that, you know, I was with that company for a long time. It's sort of the end of an era. Or when you come to retirement, man, I've worked my whole life and now, and now I'm retiring. It's the end of an era. We have these various stages in life where we mark these major transitions and we say, this is the end of an era. But the end of one era always signals the beginning of a new one. <clears throat> so, you know, you go from being single to getting married. You move from one era into a, a whole new era. You move from one career to another. You move jobs from one into another. One era gives way to the next. And we understand this about life because life just goes through these seasons. And the seasons don't last forever. And we transition into a new season. And sometimes we look back on those earlier eras and we say things like man those were the days those were the days nostalgia sometimes kicks in and we look back longingly we miss those old eras sometimes well in our passage this morning Paul launches into a discussion about the end of an era and the beginning of a new era for the people of God in redemptive history the history of God's redemptive acts with his people from Abraham all the way up to today. <clears throat> now in the context of the letter, Paul is defending his status and his ministry as an apostle. Look at verses 1 and 2. He says, Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter of recommendation, written on our hearts to be known and read by all. Paul does not need anyone else, he says, to vouch for him or authenticate his ministry or verify his apostleship. 
And this is what he's referring to whenever someone who was lesser known to the churches was being sent to a church, they would have letters from a well-known person that they can trust and say, look, when this guy gets to your church, he's not a charlatan, he's not a spy, he's, he's legit. Okay, he's a good guy. Paul will say, look, welcome this dude when he gets to your church, he's okay, I've trained him, he's safe. And then they'll get the letter, and they will authenticate this guy to them. And here the Corinthians are asking Paul for his papers. Hey, Paul, where's your letter of authentication? How, how do we know we can trust you? And he's like, what are you talking about? I planted the church. <laughs> You're only here because I'm here. Paul was the one who went to Corinth, preached the gospel. People believed it. He planted this church. He pastored this church for over a year before he moved on to another city. And he's saying, what are you talking about? Where are my papers? What do you mean I need a letter of recommendation? You guys are my letter of recommendation. The fact that you exist as a church is my letter of authentication. And now look at verses 5 and 6. He says, Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God. So he said, I'm not bragging about how great I am. Look, I planted the church, so... Look at me. He's saying, look, no, no, no. I'm not saying that I'm anything important here or that I'm anything special. I'm not sufficient to be an apostle, but God has called me to be an apostle. Verse 6, our sufficiency is from God who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant. Paul says God himself has called us as apostles and he has equipped us to carry out this ministry. God made us apostles, and the evidence is you guys are a church. That's all the proof I need that I am a legit apostle. This is what Paul says when he defends his ministry elsewhere in the letter to the Galatians. Very first verse, he says, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. So I'm not called by any human person or human court or some other church. Jesus himself has called me, and God himself has made me sufficient to be the apostle that I am. So he's defending his ministry. And what is that ministry? He says in verse 6, God has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant. Ministers of a new covenant. Now, Paul goes on in the rest of the chapter to unpack this new covenant ministry. Paul describes it in terms of the end of an era for the old covenant, which is passing away, and the dawn of a new era with a new covenant that is permanent. And what is it that marks the decisive transition from the old era of the old covenant to the beginning of this new era and the new covenant? Answer, Pentecost. The day of Pentecost, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, marks the dawn of the age of the Spirit under the new covenant. The ministry of the new covenant is the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And as we look to this passage today, we're going to see three things that mark the ministry of the Spirit. First, the Spirit writes the new covenant in our hearts, not on stone. Paul calls it a letter from Christ. Second, the Spirit's ministry 
comes with greater unfading glory than the old covenant. And third, the Spirit's ministry brings unveiled liberty to God's people, unlike the old covenant. Paul explains these three points throughout this chapter, and let's look at these one at a time. First, in verses 1 through 6, Paul describes the Corinthians as a letter from Christ that is written by the Holy Spirit. Now, we already saw in verses 1 and 2 uh, where Paul defended himself and his apostleship. I don't need letters to vouch for me. The fact that you are a church that God used me to plant is all the letter of recommendation I need. He defends himself in verses 1 and 2. But in verses 3 and 4, he shifts the metaphor slightly and he says the Corinthians are a letter from Christ that Paul delivered. Look at verses 3 and 4. He says, And you show, you Corinthians show or display that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. What's Paul getting at here? Notice this, what Paul claims. He is saying that Christ is the author of his church. If the Corinthians are a letter from Christ, the Corinthian church is a letter from Christ, Christ is the author of this letter. Christ brings his church into being. Christ creates his church. Just like you open up your computer, bring up a Word document, it's blank. There's nothing there. Whatever's going to be on that screen, you have to put it there. You have to create it. Type it letter by letter, word by word, sentence by sentence. You're the one who makes that document. Or pull out a sheet of paper that you're going to write a letter to someone. It doesn't say anything. It's just blank until you write it. That's the analogy he's using. Christ is the one who creates the church. He brings it into existence. And before he sets pen to paper, there isn't a church there. It's blank. Christ is the author of the church. And he says, Paul says that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us. So here, Paul's saying, look, Jesus writes the mail. I just work for the post office. Right? I, I don't write the mail. I just deliver it. That's Paul's point. Jesus writes his church and he uses little puny messengers like me to just go and read the mail and watch the church come into being. That's Paul's role. I'm a delivery guy. I just deliver Christ's letter. That's his role as a preacher and a teacher, a missionary and an apostle. And how does Christ write this letter? Paul says he writes it not with ink in verse 3, but with the Spirit of the living God. Jesus doesn't need to use a quill and an inkwell and scribble out on a piece of paper. Jesus uses the Holy Spirit to write his letter. He uses the Spirit to create his church. Paul preaches God's gospel the Word of Christ, and the Holy Spirit copies that Word onto human hearts for their salvation. And thus, the church comes into being. Christ does this by the Holy Spirit. That's the Spirit's role 
in this new covenant ministry. He brings the church into being. Now notice the contrast here that Paul makes between tablets of stone and tablets of human hearts here in verse 3. You are written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Notice the contrast. The Old Covenant is based on the Ten Commandments. Right? Exodus chapter 20, Moses is going up the mountain. He gets two tablets of stone, and we're told that God writes the Ten Commandments for him with his very finger. He carves out the Ten Commandments, two copies on two stone tablets, and that is the basis for the Old Covenant, the covenant with Moses. It's written on stone. And here, he says, this new covenant isn't like that. It's not written externally on a couple of tablets of stone. The new covenant is written on hearts. It's written on the human heart. So that what? So that we keep it from the inside out, not the outside in. See, on the old covenant, God wrote his covenant out on stone. It's external to us, and it's law. It comes to us, and it tells us, here's what God says. Here's what God wants you to do. Here's the commandments. Go do the commandments, and then you'll be righteous. And it'll go well with you. And if you, if you don't keep the commandments, if you break the covenant, if you're lawless, it's not going to be pretty. There are dire consequences for being a covenant breaker. And that's how the covenant landed on all Israelites. This is not that way. That's a keep the covenant from the outside in, where the law talks to me out here. In the new covenant, that law isn't scribbled on stone with the finger of God. It's written on our hearts by the Spirit of God so that we keep it from the inside out. The law is in your heart. The covenant is kept in your heart so that it becomes this natural outflowing to obey. It requires a new heart, a new heart. And Jeremiah talks about this in Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34. He says, I'm going to make a new covenant with the people of Israel. It won't be like the old one that they all broke. This one will have my law written in their hearts so that they will walk in my ways. The new covenant is an inside-out covenant. And this is the basis for Paul's confidence in verse 4. He says, such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. We know that we are legitimate apostles because we see God fulfilling His new covenant promises and prophecies when we preach the word of the gospel to you in Corinth. We preach... Christ uses the Holy Spirit to write His covenant on your heart. He saves you. He changes you. He brings you into the church. And that's how we know. That's how we have confidence in God. Not because we're sufficient or because we trust our own spiritual gifts, but we trust in the God who is able to change hearts. Now Paul explains this further in verse 6. He says, God has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. Not the letters etched in stone, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life, he says. The letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. 
the old covenant written in letters on stone tablets calls for the execution of sinners and lawbreakers. It kills, but the ministry of the Spirit is written in the heart and it brings life. It is a ministry of life. And that's what the letter from Christ is. When he delivers his letter, when he delivers on his promises, the church is born. God does that. And all we do is receive it. We just receive the mail. We don't write it ourselves. We don't deliver it ourselves. It comes to us and we wait for it to arrive. That's how the gospel comes. That's how salvation comes. It's delivered from the Lord. And it's written with the Spirit of God. A letter from Christ that saves. That's the ministry of the Spirit. Now, point two. This brings us to the second point Paul wants to make here in verses 7 through 11. The ministry of the Spirit, because of what we just saw in point one, the ministry of the Spirit, therefore, has greater glory than the old covenant ministry. Look at verses 7 and 8. He says, Now if the ministry of death, carved in letters on stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, Will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory, Paul says? Now what he's referring to here is a story in Exodus 34, beginning in verse 29 through to, I think, 35 or so. He's, he's alluding back to Exodus 34, where Moses goes and meets with God, and God meets with him face to face, and tells him what the law is. And then Moses turns around and goes out to the people. And his face is glowing because he has been in the presence of God. The glory of God has just been beaming on his face. Just like if we go outside and we're outside for hours and the sun is just beating down our face. We're going to be sunburned, red, scorched. Moses goes into the presence of God and he gets scorched with the glory of God's holy presence. And he comes out, he doesn't have some little sunburn, he is radiating light. There is just a shine and a sheen to his face. The glory of God is just bouncing off his face, reflected off of his very skin, Exodus 34 says. And the Israelites, they're minding their own business, they're waiting for Moses to come out, they know that he's in there with God in the tabernacle, and they're minding their own business, and they hear Moses behind them. Hey guys, I've got the law. Oh my goodness. They turn around, and they see this shining face, and they're terrified. They're freaked out by it, and they're like, dude, put something on. We can't look at you. It's terrifying. And so, so Moses says, okay, all right. And so he puts a veil over his face. So he goes in, he talks with God, the veil's off, comes out, face is shining, he puts the veil on. So that the Israelites feel safe. Okay. All right. All right, Moses, tell us what he said. That's the story in Exodus 34. That's what he's referring to. He says, if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone, that old covenant, the covenant made with Moses, if it came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, 
will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? If the old era and the old covenant and a ministry that brought death to the lawbreaker had glory, had that much glory that Moses had to cover his face, how much more glorious must this new covenant be? It's an argument from the lesser to the greater. If the lesser had a lot of glory, the greater has to have even more glory. And notice what he said at the end of verse 7, that the glorious covenant with Moses was coming, is coming to an end. He doesn't say the old covenant is bad, non-glorious, ugly, worthless, useless. No, Paul's a Jewish man. He stayed Jewish his whole life. He never gave up his Jewish identity. Paul did not have to stop being Jewish and identifying as Jewish to become a Christian. And he had to fight that battle his whole life. He said Jews don't have to stop being Jews to be Christians and Gentiles don't have to start being Jews to be Christians. We both belong in the same family together under this new covenant. Jews don't have to give up Jew being Jewish. Gentiles don't have to give up being Gentiles. We belong together. Christ came to save the Jewish people and all people. That's Paul's battle. But, he says, the old covenant was glorious. In Romans, he says, the law is excellent. It's good. It's God's will. There's nothing wrong with the law. But, the issue is, it's, even though it's glorious, God never meant it to be permanent. And he never made it unbreakable. It can be broken. It has been broken. It is broken. And it's fading away because it was intended by God to be temporary. It's a temporary covenant. It had a lot of glory because it's from God. The old covenant is still the word of God. The Old Testament is still the word of God. It's a glorious thing and we love it. But we're not under that covenant anymore. Now we're under the new, which is even more glorious. He called, look at what he says here in verse 9. After he makes this argument from the lesser to the greater, if the lesser had glory, the greater has to have even more glory. He says in verse 9, If there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Now here I think the ESV, it's, a, it's perfectly correct, but I think it would help bring out the contrast more if they gave the alternate translation, which is available, to contrast it with ministry of condemnation, it would be more helpful to say ministry of justification. Which is it's the same word. The word for justification and righteousness is the same in Greek. And this brings out the contrast. And some translations do that. Maybe yours has that, has that translation. The ministry of condemnation is the old covenant, but the new is the ministry of justification. The old covenant condemns, the new covenant justifies. The old covenant tells you, here's God's will, keep the law, be obedient. If you break it, we have sacrifices, but if you break it bad enough, you're cut off. The law does not give you the full permanent remedy for your sin. The law does not give you the power to keep the law. The law does not give you the ability to walk in righteousness. The law does not give you the ability to justify yourself. This is why Paul says in Romans, through the law, we just know more about our own sin. <laughs> Every time we say, oh, God wants me to do that too? Well, I've never done that. Well, I'm, I'm more sinful than I thought. Oh, that's a commandment? Well, great. I've been breaking that one for a long time. 
I guess I'm more sinful than I thought. That's all the law does. The law always condemns. It doesn't only condemn once you're a Christian. The law tells you how to live a righteous, holy life. It doesn't only condemn, but it always does at least condemn because it shows us how sinful we are. It's not just a light for our path. It's also a mirror so we can see what we're really like. One is a ministry of condemnation. The other is a ministry that is righteous, a ministry of justification. And this is what, this is what his argument is. If, the minist- if there was a glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. And then he says in verse 10, Indeed, in this case, what once had glory, the old covenant, has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. In other words, Paul is saying the new covenant is so glorious, it puts the old in the shade. One is coming to an end. The other is permanent. Verse 11. For if what was being brought to an end, the covenant with Moses, the old covenant, if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. The new covenant is more glorious. The new covenant is from Christ. It's a ministry of the Holy Spirit. It brings life. It changes hearts. It brings justification from all the sins that the law of Moses could not justify you from. And so, I think Paul would say, if anybody in was listening to this, who was feeling some nostalgia for the old covenant. Yeah, we've become Christians, but remember how good it was back in the day. Those were the days, weren't they? Paul would say, there's no need for nostalgia. There's no need to go back. In fact, there's nothing to go back to. Because the new has come. The Spirit is here. The Messiah has come. You don't need to go back. What we have now in Christ and the Spirit is greater than what they had under Moses. Again, Moses is not bad. He's not saying, look how, look how horrible the old covenant was. Look how bad the law was. Moses was a jerk. He's not saying any of that. He's just making a comparison. One was awesome. Look how much more awesome this is. You don't need to go back. In fact, the whole letter to the Hebrews is written to make this argument because there are Jews who have become Christians who are thinking, look, maybe we should just go back to, to Judaism and give up, give up the Christ part. And he makes an argument throughout the whole letter. No, because Christ is greater than Moses. He's greater than angels. He's greater than the high priest. He's greater than Aaron. He's, and he just goes through. Christ is better than this, better than this, and better than this. The whole letter to the Hebrews is written to defend chapter 3 of Second Corinthians, as it were. There's no need for nostalgia. What you have, Christian, is greater. Much, much greater. That brings us to the final point. Verses 12 to 18. Paul comes back to a point he made in verse 7 and explains it more fully. Look what he said in verse 7. He says, Now if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? So, what he said there in verse 7, again, is this story in Exodus chapter 34. Now, Paul, in our last section here, verses 12 to 18, he comes back to that story 
and he explains it a little more fully. Look what he says in 12 and 13. He says, Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. That's that story where they had to put the veil, he had to put the veil on because the Israelites couldn't bear to look into his face because it was shining with so much brightness and glory. And then he says in verses 14 and 15, but their minds were hardened. Talking about the Israelites who looked at Moses' face. Well, they looked at the veil. They couldn't see his face. They couldn't see his face at all. You imagine this. If you just kind of picture it, it's just this veil that's a little bit sheer, so you can kind of see behind it a little bit. It's got this veil on, but you can't see his face at all. Why? Because it's just light. It's just light. Imagine draping a veil over a light bulb that's turned on. It's just light coming out. You don't see any distinct features. They couldn't even see Moses' face at all. It's just light behind a veil. Whose face is that? He says that their minds, the Israelites who were looking at Moses' veiled face, their minds were hardened. Minds were hardened. They couldn't understand. They did not grasp what they were actually looking at. And then he says, for to this day, not just back then in Exodus 34, today, Paul says, to this day, when they, Jews, read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted. He says, Moses' veil is still draped across his face even today, so that when you go to synagogue and you hear the, the annual weekly reading of the Old Covenant, they read through the, the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. They read through it on an annual cycle. Some synagogues read through it the whole thing in a year, 52 readings, some cases 54. Other synagogues will do it on a three-year cycle. And we do something similar in Christianity for traditions that use the lectionary. And he says, so every Sabbath, as they're just going through the Torah, reading passage after passage, a veil is still over the Old Covenant. A veil is still draped over Moses' face. They still don't know what they're looking at. They haven't fully grasped. Verse 14 again. Their minds were hardened, for to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Only when one turns to Christ can the veil be lifted and the veil removed. The veil, Paul says, is blindness. It's blindness of mind. It's blindness of heart. A blindness that only Jesus can take away. Because remember last week, Jesus told his Jewish opponents in the Gospel of John, if you believed Moses, you would believe what I'm telling you because Moses wrote about me. Moses was telling you about me. But that veil is still there and they can't see it. They can't see it because only in Christ can you really have the veil removed and see what's really there. So Paul applies Exodus 34 
to unbelieving Jewish people that he loved and prayed for in his own day. And then, at the end of the chapter, he applies it to us. Paul applies Exodus 34 to us and to the Holy Spirit. Notice what he says in verse 17. Verse 16, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. When one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. It's very interesting in Exodus 34, if you read it carefully... Especially, it's, it's, it's hard to see in English. It's, it's detectable in Hebrew. What's happening in, verse, in Exodus 34? In Exodus 34, Paul goes, comes out of the tabernacle after speaking with God. He puts the veil on. He tells the people what God told him to tell them. And then when it's time to go back in, he turns around and he goes in. And the Hebrew just says, and he removes the veil. He removes it. Now, the subject of that verb is ambiguous in Hebrew. It's not clear who the he is. In Hebrew grammar, it's just, it's not quite clear. It sounds like Moses takes the veil off. But it's just possible, because it's ambiguous, that God takes the veil off of Moses. And Paul knows this, and I think that's how Paul reads it. Just look what Paul says. Verse 15, yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Not when one turns to the Lord, he removes it for himself. When one turns to the Lord, like Moses going back into the tabernacle to meet with God, the veil is removed. Passive voice. The Hebrew is just ambiguous enough to allow for this. When one turns to the Lord, God removes the veil. God is the one who takes the veil off so you can see God face to face. Only in Christ is it removed. And here Paul says, in that passage in chapter 34 of Exodus, when it says he goes in to meet with the Lord and the veil is removed... He says the Lord he's meeting with in that chapter is the Holy Spirit. Now in Exodus, he's meeting with Yahweh. Jehovah God. And Paul says, that was the Holy Spirit. That's what he means when he says the Lord is the Spirit. He's not saying Jesus is the Holy Spirit. The Lord can be used of multiple persons in the Trinity. The Father's called Lord. Christ is called Lord. The Holy Spirit's called Lord. And here he's saying, the Lord in that chapter, Exodus 34, the one who removes the veil, that's the Holy Spirit. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. The Spirit is the one who sets us free. The Holy Spirit is the one who takes away our blindness, who takes away our hardness of heart, who opens blind eyes, who opens and raises dead hearts. The Holy Spirit sets us free, unlooses the chains and the blindness that holds us down and blinds us to seeing what's really there in the gospel. 
And then Paul applies it to us. Last verse of the chapter, verse 18. He says, And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. All of us have had our veils removed so that we can actually see the glory. Moses has the veil over his face and you can't see really what his face looks like because it's just light behind a veil. And when you get converted, when you get saved and the Holy Spirit takes that veil off, you don't see the face of Moses. The glorious face you see is Christ because Moses wrote about Christ. The glory of the Lord shines in the face of Jesus. And Paul goes on to say this in chapter 4. He says, even if our gospel, chapter 4 verse 3, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, to the lost. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. And then in verse 6 he says, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness. Genesis 1-3, Let there be light. The God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of, not Moses, in the face of Jesus Christ. Christ is the image and glory of God. When the veil is removed by the Holy Spirit, we see Jesus for who He really is, the glorious, saving Messiah that God sent for us, the Redeemer, the true Lord of the world. The Spirit sets us free to behold Jesus Christ in His beauty and in His glory as the true Lord and God of all. That's what the ministry of the Spirit does. So as we conclude, Christian, Paul says we all with unveiled face get to see the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. You know what that means? That means everybody's a Moses under the new covenant. In the old covenant, only Moses got to go in the tabernacle with unveiled face and see God. And then he came out and put the veil on. Nobody else got to do that. Paul says under this covenant, because of the Holy Spirit, we all have an unveiled face. We all get to go meet with God and see the glory shining from the face of the Lord. Every man's a Moses. That's why it's so much more glorious. And we all have the Holy Spirit. And we all have that glory shining, not in our faces, but in our hearts. Because we have the Holy Spirit filling us, as on the day of Pentecost, with glory and fire. You are alive, Christian, because of the Holy Spirit. You are free, Christian, because of the Holy Spirit. You are being transformed, Christian, from one degree of glory to the next. All the way to the finish line when we are fully glorified in the presence of the Lord. You are being changed day by day, transformed. How? You keep looking at Jesus. You keep looking into His eyes 
that flame with fire. You keep staring and gazing unveiled into the face of your Savior. In your scriptures, at the table of the Lord's Supper, in corporate worship, when we fellowship, when we sing, when we watch each other act like Jesus, we are seeing His glory. And we are changed. We are made new from the inside out. All this is from the Lord who is the Spirit, Paul says. Pentecost is all about life. It's about fire. It's about freedom. It's about glory. The pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire that was out in front of the Israelites that they followed in the wilderness, now the pillar lights on you. The pillar burns in you. You are a tabernacle of the Holy Spirit. You are a temple of the Lord. Open the gates and let the fire burn. Call down that fire from heaven like Elijah. And know it's a new era. It's the end of an old era, and it's a good news. We have a new era. We have a new life. It's the end of an era that was passing away, and it's the beginning of eternity for you in Christ. Only by the Spirit of the living God. It's the hope of a new era for you. That's the promise of Pentecost. You can be new. You can be free. Today, Jesus says in the Gospel of Luke, the Father is pleased to give us the Holy Spirit if we will ask Him. So let that be the cry of your heart today. Holy Spirit, have your own way with me. Holy Spirit, come. Creator Spirit, come and burn in me. Have your way with me. Take the veil away. I want to see Jesus. Let's pray. Father, that is our cry today, that you would open up the doors of these temples and that your spirit would come and dwell with us. The living, holy, glorious presence of God would fill us and flood our very being, every molecule, every atom, sanctified, set apart, beating and brimming and shivering and shaking and moving in its orbit for you alone. Lord, we look forward to that day when this will be a full, final, eternal reality, when we see you, when you come again, when you raise us up from our graves and get us out of our tombs. No more mortality, no more sickness and pain, no more setbacks, no more disappointments, no more hindrances, no more sin, just us and you in perfect glory and fullness of joy that lasts forever. That's what we're longing for. Give us a taste of that today. Holy Spirit, come as on that old day of Pentecost and make it a living, burning reality for us today. Unveil our faces. Let us glimpse our Jesus. And may our hearts burn for Him. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.